I know that many of you remember a, a movie from 1991 called City Slickers. It's a movie that starred Billy Crystal, and it was a story about three friends who take kind of a, a buddy vacation together each year. Each year they take this vacation, the three of them, and each year they go somewhere different. And this particular year that the, the movie is based on, they, they do that alternative buddy vacation going to a dude ranch. Part of the activities that week at the dude ranch is a cattle drive. They, they spend several days on this cattle drive. Billy Crystal, his character is, is going through a bit of a midlife crisis. He's not happy at home. He's not happy at work. He's not happy as a husband or as a father. And he's hoping that somehow in the midst of this week-long vacation, he'll find meaning for life. During the course of the week, he meets a cowhand by the name of Curly. And he discovers that Curly is a bit of a wise man. And so they begin to have these deeper and deeper conversations, and eventually they get to the meaning of life. Billy Crystal asks Curly, what is the meaning of life? And Curly's response is, is interesting. He raises his index finger and he says, the meaning of life is one thing. Now, as Curly says that, I'm filled with hope. Maybe Curly is going to tell Billy Crystal about Jesus and, and the hope that's found in him. But he doesn't. He says the meaning of life is one thing, but that one thing is different for everyone. And each person has to discover what that one thing is for them. Billy Crystal spends the rest of the, the week trying to discover what that one thing is for him. You know, millions of people are walking this planet called Earth, Earth in search of meaning. For many of them, they, they have found uh, all those important things that we count as important. They've got the home, the family, the job, and the vacation spot is all picked out, but they're missing meaning. They're missing the thing that, that causes it all to make sense. They're, they're missing the most important thing. You know, Billy Crystal's character isn't unusual. If so many people are, are looking for that most important thing. It's missing from their life, and they're searching for it. And when you boil it down, that's the question that Jesus is asked by that religious leader. He approached Jesus and he said, what's the most important commandment? You, re you remember Jesus' response, right? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love others. Love. Love is the most important thing. Love is what brings meaning to life. Love is the answer. The thing is that that answer prompts other questions, doesn't it? What is this love? What does this love look like? Where do I go to find this kind of love? How do I give that kind of love? We have all kinds of examples of love in the media these days. There are TV shows and movies that are filled with, with a kind of love that's, that's heavy on romance and short on commitment. We even have a holiday that's all about love. We have Valentine's Day, right? And in those weeks leading up to Valentine's Day, you can read a lot about love as you peruse the greeting card section at the local grocery store. We read about a, a kind of love that's heavy on romance, a kind of fuzzy, warm and fuzzy kind of love that's found between a man and a woman. But the question is, is that the kind of love that Jesus was talking about? Is that the kind of love that brings meaning to life? I don't think so. 
But if it's not, where do we go to find that kind of love? Where do we go to find examples of the kind of love that Jesus is talking about as he's talking about this? Well, I go to the place where most of life's problems are solved. And I'm not talking about the golf course. I go to God's love letter. I go to the Bible. And I I want us to go there together this morning. If you have your Bibles, open up your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. We are in the midst of a summer sermon series that we're calling The Power of Love. And we've been spending the summer going through the, the first letter that John wrote to those churches in Asia Minor, 1 John. And we've gotten to chapter 4 this morning, and we're going to begin reading at verse 7. So follow with me as I read. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because we, he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. For everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. The Apostle John has written this letter as a circular letter to the churches of Asia Minor that he had ministered to previously. A circular letter is a letter that's written to Christians to be read in a church in one location and passed on to another church to be read and then another church and then another church. The people that John is writing to are people that he has had a relationship with previously and who he dearly loves. And John has heard about a form of Gnosticism that's being taught to these same people, and and he's concerned. And so he he writes this letter both to warn the people about this false teaching, but also to to speak to them and to teach them the truth. As you read this letter, you quickly sense this passion that John has, not only for the people he's writing to, but also for the truth of the gospel. John is not a young man anymore. And having these people know and understand the truth is so, so important to him. 
helping us to know the truth, understand the truth of the gospel is important as well. And so what are some of the truths that we can mine from our passage this morning? I want to pull out three things. There's so much in this passage, but I want to focus in this morning on three things in particular. The first one is this, that love is an evidence of faith. That our love is an evidence of our faith in God. In verse 7, John says that, that love originates from God himself. That Jesus coming to earth is a portrait of, of how God loves us. And so Christians who live out that love, people, Christians who love others, are showing evidence of their faith. They're exhibiting their faith in God. In verse 7 it says, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Now that first phrase where it says, has been born of God, is in the perfect tense, which is referring to something that's happened in the past. This divine rebirth in this, this Christian is something that has happened in the past. And then that phrase, and knows God, that word knows is in the present tense. And it says that this divine rebirth that's happened in the past is now showing fruit in the present. There is a conversion that happened at some time in the past, and yet that person, once converted, continues to show the fruit of that conversion. If we know God, if we have faith in God, then we will show love. We will live lives of love. In verse 8, John says that the reverse is true as well. That those who do not love cannot possibly know God. That love and faith are linked together. You can't have one without the other. And so the question that we're prompted with here is, is what's our love quotient? How and, and to whom do we show love? Are we known to be loving people? Or is love that, that we, something we pull off the shelf like our fine china and use just on special occasions? Love is an evidence of faith. We are called to love. But the second thing I want us to pull out of this passage is, is to love God is to obey God. Jesus' command was, as, as he summarized the greatest command, was love God and love others. And so the question that follows that is, what does it look like to love God? How do I show my love to God? And John says very clearly that we show our love for God by obeying God. In verse 3, it says, this is love for God to keep his commands. Over and over again in Scripture, love and obedience are linked together. In the Gospel of John, we see in chapter 14, three separate instances where Jesus, Jesus' words said that if you love me, you will obey me. In verse 15, it says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. In verse 21, Jesus said, whoever has my commands and obeys them is the one who loves me. And in verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. Now, for John, the exhortation to obedience doesn't come with a threat. No, John's encouragement towards obedience is coming with inspiration, with an encouragement of inspiration. God's inspiring love, God's generous affection for us compels us to obey. I mean, if, if God has done this much for us, how can we do any less for him? See, our love expression cannot be limited to words only. Our love expression for God must be lived out by our actions, our actions of obedience, which is what James is getting at here. He says, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. 
If we love God, we will obey God. But then the, the second part of that equation, God, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love your neighbor. What does that love for our neighbor look like? What does it look like to, to love the person sitting next to you, the person who lives across the street from you, the person who is in your, the cubicle next to you at work or at the, the seat next to you in school? What does that love look like? This passage tells us that we love others by following God's example. And it defines for us what God's love looks like and what our love for others looks like as well. In verse 10 it says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In this verse I see three qualities of the love that God has extended to us the kind of love that we are then to extend to others. And first of all, it's a love that takes the initiative. It's a love that goes first. God did not stand back from his creation and, and wait for his creation to love him. He didn't stand back and said, I made you. You exist because I granted you existence, now love me. No, God's love took the initiative. God's love moved first. God chose to love us before we loved him. That's the kind of love God calls us to share with others. Now, very often, our love is kind of a responsive love. We respond to someone else's love towards us. And when their loving actions towards us stop, our responsive love towards them often stops. But that's not what we're called to, right? Our call is to love people whether they love us back or not. Whether they have loved us first or not, we are called to take the initiative. We are called to move towards them with love. When I first began in youth ministry many, many years ago, I was working at a church in Pasadena. And a, one of the things that we, we did in that first year that I was there was take a group of students on a mission trip to the nation of Guatemala. We spent two weeks in a very primitive village called Santiago. It was the kind of village where the men would head off into the forest each day to cut wood so they'd have wood to, to cook their food on in the evening. It was a kind of primitive village where the women would take the dirty laundry to the lake and, and wash the laundry there at the shore of the lake. It was, it was a very primitive, very beautiful and wonderful village. We spent the first week doing vacation Bible school for the, the children of the village. And the second week, we partnered with a local church that was building a new facility, and, and we helped them out with that building project. Now, there were three tasks that we had as we helped with the construction. The first task was to take big rocks and make little rocks and gravel and sand that could be used for, for the cement. And we used hammers and sledgehammers to break these down and, and make them ready for the cement. The second task was bending rebar. This was going to be a two-story church facility, and they were using rebar to strengthen the walls so that it might be sustaining of that second story. And the third task was to take tree saplings and cut them to the right length so that they could be used for scaffolding to, to build that second story. Now, the instructions that were given for the, the group that was working on the tree saplings were very specific, and they were very safety-conscious, because like I said, this was a primitive village. There were no power tools. They didn't even have saws. And so we cut these tree saplings using a machete, hacking at them with a machete. 
and the specific instructions that they gave us was never place your other hand on the sapling as you were hacking away. The machete has a way of slipping. And if it slips, it can do great damage. It can slice your hand pretty badly. Well, one day I was working about partway up to the second story bending rebar when out of the corner of my eye I saw something red. And I turned and looked and it was one of the other leaders for this trip and, and he was standing there with his hand, just staring at his hand, his blood was spurting out of it. And he, he didn't move to do anything to stop it. He, he was kind of mesmerized by this blood. Truth is, I was mesmerized too. I didn't move. I was just watching the scene unfold. And as I became aware of others who were noticing what was going on, nobody was moving towards him. He was just standing there with this blood. And, and then I noticed out of the corner of my eye somebody running towards him. And I turned and looked, and it, and it was my wife, Liz. She was running towards him. She got to him. She began to put pressure on his hand. She helped him sit down before he passed out. And then she began to give instructions. You do this, and you do this, and you do this. And together we were able to get him the help that he needed. His hand was stitched up. He was just fine. But I often think back at this scene as, as kind of a metaphor. We have a way, or at least I do, of making a bloody mess of my life. And I'm so grateful that as I make a mess of my life, God doesn't stand back mesmerized saying, Wagner, you did it again. God moves towards us. In his love, God moves towards us. Before we ask, before we even approach him, he approaches us. God's love takes the initiative, goes first, reaches out to us. The second thing I see about the kind of love that God models for us is that it's, it's a love that's exhibited by action. It's not just words, it's actions. He backs up his words with his actions, and we see that right from the beginning of the gospel story as God sent. Verse 10 says, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. God didn't wait. God didn't just say. God did. And he sent his son to walk this earth. He put on human flesh to show us what God was like and, and walk this earth for 33 years to show us his love through his actions. That's the kind of love we're called to share as well. Now, I know that we all know people who say, I love you, but whose actions tell a very different story. And in that situation, which one do you tend to believe, the, the words or the actions? I tend to believe the actions. See, love, if it is to be real, must be backed up by actions. Several years ago, I was reading a book that I recommend very highly. It's called Under the Overpass. It's written by a guy named Mike Yankowski. He was relating an experience that he had during his, between his sophomore and his junior years of college. He was a, a Christian college student at Westmont College in Santa Barbara. And he became aware of this nagging question that he, he kept returning to. Would my faith survive? Would I continue to, to love God and serve God if, if all the comforts that I'm, I'm now accustomed to went away? Mike's family was affluent. Mike had all the comforts that come with affluence and very few challenges, real challenges in his life. And he began to wonder if those things went away, if those comforts went away, would I continue to love and serve God the way that I do now? If I had a Job-like experience, what would that do to my faith? 
He decided to put this to a test. He and a friend by the name of Sam spent the next five months living as homeless men in America. They chose five different cities in the U.S., spent one month in each of those cities living on the streets, sleeping under the overpass, which is where the book gets its title, eating food out of trash cans, dumpster diving, panhandling for for money so they can buy a burger at the grocery store or at the, the fast food restaurant, living that difficult life that is common to those living on the streets today. One day they were in the city of Berkeley, And it was a Sunday morning, and they were attending worship at a church. Most Sundays, they would go to church, and they sat in the back of the worship center, and and like usual, nobody came near. Mike said, to be fair, by that time, we hadn't showered in several weeks, so we smelled pretty ripe. But he also discovered in this time that that a lot of people were very uncomfortable with homeless people and just tended to give them a wide berth and, and not engage them. Well, they were sitting in the back of the worship center, and worship concluded, and they, they stayed for a little bit. Mike wanted to write in his journal to to remind himself some of the things the pastor had said in his sermon. And so they were sitting there, Mike was journaling, and a a young adult by the name of Drew approached and engaged. Drew and two of his friends came and engaged Mike and Sam. They exchanged names. Uh, Drew asked a bit about Mike's life. How's it going? What's it like out there? How's, How's life on the streets? Mike sense that Drew was genuine in his concern and began to share what it was like, how difficult it is to sleep at night when it gets cold and how they're exhausted most of the time because they rarely get a good night of sleep, how they at that point had not eaten in a couple of days and they were really hungry, and how even that morning his his sandals had broken and he tried to put them back together using some duct tape. When Mike finished sharing the details of what life was like, Drew smiled and said, I'm sorry. That's so hard. I can only imagine how difficult your life is. I'm going to be praying for you, brother. They got up and he walked away with his friends. Mike relates, for a few moments, he and Sam just sat there in stunned silence. And then they turned to each other and said, did he just say he was going to pray for us and nothing else? Aren't we called to do more than that? Sam said, Mike, do you feel loved? Mike said, no, I don't. I think sometimes Christians hide behind those words, I'll pray for you. We, We use those words to absolve ourselves from doing something more. And as powerful as prayer is, I know God calls us to do more than that. God calls us to love people with our actions. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is called the love chapter of the Bible. It's often read at at wedding ceremonies. It's interesting to note that none of the examples of love in chapter 13 are the warm and fuzzy kind. They're all examples of love in action. Examples such as being patient and kind, rejoicing in truth, protecting, trusting, hoping, persevering, I think that this makes this chapter so appropriate for wedding ceremonies, the most romantic of all occasions. It's a reminder to that couple that is now committing their lives to another person. They won't always have these warm and fuzzy and romantic feelings towards them. But in those moments, when those feelings are gone, you can have a deeper, a deeper, more committed love for each other, the kind of love God modeled first for us kind of love that it's not just based on words or feelings, but based 
on actions and deep, deep commitment. The third quality, the third piece of that kind of love that God modeled requires sacrifice. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God's love for us cost him dearly. It cost his son his life. And sometimes the love that God would have us share with other people is the kind of love that costs us something as well. Maybe time that we don't have to give. Maybe it'll cost us uh, some inconvenience, going the extra mile. Maybe it's going to be the kind of love that calls us to, to love someone who's not so lovable. But that's the essence of godly love, isn't it? It's loving when loving isn't easy. When I first started in youth ministry, my role at this church in Pasadena was primarily discipling a group of high school guys. I had junior and senior guys that I was discipling, and, and one of the guys in my group was a guy named Sal. Sal was a 16-year-old high school junior. Sal was a gang member. He was a member of 18th Street Gang at that time, which was, was the largest gang in the U.S. at that point. Sal's gang nickname was Little Psycho because there was nothing that Sal was afraid to do. When he was 13 years old, Sal was selling drugs already. When he was 15, he was spending a year incarcerated for attempted murder. And now here he is, a 16-year-old high school junior, and he's our, in our small group. And so we began with the basics. We began with the basics and teaching him about God and, and life with God. And in a matter of months, God grabbed a hold of Sal. And Sal committed his life to Christ. As Sal became a Christian, he realized that being a Christian and being a gang member don't go together. And so he began to make plans to, to get out of the gang. Now, those of you who know anything about gangs know it's difficult to get into a gang. You've got to really want it. They have an initiation rite that it's called being jumped in, where the gang gathers around the person who is joining and pounds on them for several minutes. You've got to want it. They want to make sure that you're committed, that this is not just a, a fleeting decision, but this is something you're committing yourself to. Being jumped out of a gang is, is much tougher. You're leaving the gang. You're no longer of any use to them. And so the beating you take as you're getting jumped out of the gang is far more severe than when you're getting jumped in. And this is what Sal was anticipating in the next few weeks. One Wednesday night, I showed up to a youth group, and Sal came running up to me. I could tell he had something he needed to tell me. He started to tell me a story about a young man just like him that the youth pastor had told the Sunday before. I had been out of town, I had missed Sunday morning, and, and he needed me to hear this story. He starts to tell me about this, this young man who was a gang member who'd come to faith through the youth ministry of a local church. And now he was beginning to make that steps towards that process of getting out of the gang. A young man called up his youth pastor and asked for prayer. The youth pastor said, I'd, I'd love to pray for you. Tell me how I can pray specifically. He said, well, I'm getting jumped out of my gang on Friday, and I'm a little bit afraid because it's going to hurt, and I, I just need you to pray for me. The youth pastor said, well, tell me a bit about that. What does it mean to be jumped out of a gang? The young man said, well, in my gang, it means running the gauntlet. The guys are going to make two rows. And I'm going to have to run right through the middle of it, and they're going to hit me as I go by, and they're going to hit me hard, and it's going to hurt, and I'm scared. I just need you to pray for me. The youth pastor said, you don't need to run the gauntlet. The young man said, well, of course I do. I'm a Christian. I'm following Jesus now. I can't be a gang member. 
youth pastor said it again. You don't have to run the gauntlet because I'll run it for you. Now, Sal was telling me the story, and my first thought is, Sal, <laughs> buddy, <laughs> I love you. I'm not running the gauntlet for you. But then I realized that's not why Sal was telling me this story. He was telling me this story because for the very first time, he was understanding his heavenly Father's love for him. See, we had talked again and again about how God loves us, how our heavenly Father loves us so deeply, and Sal never got it. You see, Sal's earthly father was anything but loving. At that point, Sal's earthly father was in prison for selling drugs. And when he was in the home, Sal often had to stand between mom and dad because dad beat up mom. And so when we would talk about, about our heavenly father loving him, he didn't get it. In Sal's vocabulary, father was not a loving word. But in this story, he got it. He understood it for the very first time, that his heavenly father loves him so much that he sent his son to run the gauntlet for him. It changed him. God's love changes people. God's love that takes the initiative, that, that takes the form of action, that, that takes the form of sacrifice, changes people. And when we love people like that, it has the power to change them as well. I'm going to send you home with an assignment this week. It's a teacher in me that's coming out. I want you to think of someone who's been difficult for you to love. Maybe this person's been more prickly than warm and fuzzy. And I want you to find ways to love them this week. Find ways to love them in, in ways that take the initiative, where your love goes first. Don't wait for them to love you. You might be waiting forever. Take the chance to love them. Take the initiative. And have your love be more than just words. Have it take on the form of action in some way, even sacrificial action. And as you do this, they will be experiencing the love of God. They will be experiencing the love that we have experienced through us. They will be getting a taste of God. Do you know, the thing is, I, I believe very strongly that the person who's going to be changed the most Who's, who's going to be blessed by this experience the most is going to be us. It's going to be me. It's going to be you. Because as we do this, as we love people the way God loves us, we experience God's presence in the midst of that. And that's the most wonderful experience in the world. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for your invitation to walk with you, to talk with you, to do life with you, to experience all that you have for us. And the top of the list of what we experience is your love. A love that sent your son to earth. A love that caused your son to climb on that cross to pay the price for, for my sin and for all of our sins. Lord, thank you that you invite us into that kingdom project where we then extend your love to the people in our lives. May we be people who give love generously, extravagantly, abundantly, so that the people in, in our sphere of influence, the people in our lives, might be pointed to you, might come to see just who you are and what you're like. May they have that same experience that Sal had as he understood your love for the first time. May their eyes be opened 
to know who you are, to know you, to live with and for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.